Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I would just like to say thank you to Pastor T2 and the other uh, elders in the session for asking me to speak. I was incredibly humbled and honored at the same time. Um, it was interesting because the week before we had our meeting with the elders about joining membership, Pastor T2 came to me and he goes, Hey, Isaiah, depending on if all goes well, would you be interested in talking about Augustine? Like, okay, but I will do the best I can. Um, has anyone ever uh, been to the Swiss Alps? Anyone? Oh, okay, so we got a few. Okay. All of us have probably seen video or pictures of it as well. Um, and it would be impossible, I'm sure for those of you who have been there, it would be impossible to fully capture the scale and majesty of the Swiss Alps in a photograph or in a video. And in the same way, it would be impossible for me to fully present all of Augustine in his majesty and splendor in a short 40-minute lesson. And so I won't be trying to do that, but I will be focusing on um, one of what somebody coined as the Augustinian Alps. And I will just be focusing on one peak within that. I don't have any PowerPoint or anything like that, and so a lot of it will just be, all of it will just be me reading, and so I apologize if I don't maintain eye contact with everybody. But uh, in regards to Augustine, since we were talking about uh, John Calvin and how he quoted, who he quoted, the most quoted writers, uh, the honor of Augustine, talking about the life of Augustine, so I kind of want to focus on the base, and then I want to move up this majestic peak towards his theology and doctrine. And so, a little bit about who Augustine was. Augustine was born Aurelius Augustinus on November 13th in 354 AD in the town of Thagest, which is modern day Algeria, near the city of Hippo in North Africa. So, once again, as we've seen previous weeks, we're focusing on the area of North Africa. His father, Patricius, was a lower income farmer who followed traditional Roman paganism, while his mother, Monica, was a faithful Christian. Pastor Titu talked a little bit about Monica, and so did Elder Andrew. In regards to Patricius specifically, uh, we do not know much about him from Augustine's writings. Uh, he was, we know that he was an incredibly generous man who sacrificed greatly to provide Augustine with a classical education. And while this was a wonderful thing that Augustine's father did for his son, um, Augustine does not praise him throughout his writings. Uh, he was a hot-tempered man. He was unfaithful to his wife and an incredibly proud man who sought the approval from others for how he sacrificed for his son. Uh, in regard to Monica, Augustine's mother, she is a dominant and relentless figure throughout Augustine's writings. He praises his mother greatly. Uh, he said of her that she loved to have me with her, as is the way with most mothers, but far more than most mothers was mine. And while being a faithful mother, excuse me, while being a faithful mother who was constantly praying for the salvation of her son, she was also also a faithful wife who prayed for the salvation of her husband, since he was a pagan. And while both of his parents were not perfect, they did have one common goal, one common thing, and that was they were determined. Patricius was determined for his son to gain a quality, classic education, and Monica in the prayers for her son and both for her husband's salvation. 
In regard to Augustine's youth, most of what we know is from his masterpiece titled Confessions. Uh, In Confessions, Augustine mourns over his youth. Uh, He doesn't mourn over the fact that he grew up in a difficult, competitive world among proud and impoverished people, where his own family at times were poorly clothed. Rather, he mourns over how he lived a life, all-consuming life of depravity and sexual sin. In Confessions, he says, As I grew into manhood, I was inflamed with desire for the abundance of hell's pleasures. As we've seen over the past few weeks, our church fathers are not perfect. They're fallen. They're sinful men. And in regards to Augustine, John Piper, in his book, The Legacy of Sovereign Joy, speaks about why we need church fathers, uh, flawed church fathers. He says, We are all contaminated by the evils of our time. Their blind spots and evils may be different from ours, and it may be that the very things they saw clearly are the things that we are blind to. It would be naive to say that we never have or never would have done what they did under their circumstances, and thus draw the conclusion that they have nothing to teach us. In fact, we are no doubt blind to many of our own evils, just as they were blind to many of theirs. And so one such evil that I wanted to talk about in showing how Augustine is flawed and fallen and sinful is in regards to what would, um, excuse me, later recognized in confessions as showing the sinfulness within himself was when he was 16 years old and he plundered a neighbor's pear tree. If you guys have read confessions, this is a familiar thing. He says, there was a pear tree close to our vineyard, heavenly laden with fruit, which was tempting neither for its color nor its flavor. To shake and rob this, some of us young fellows went late one night and carried away great loads, not to eat ourselves, but to fling to the very swine. Having only eaten some of them, and to do this pleased us all the more because it was not permitted. Behold my heart, O my God, behold my heart, which you had pity upon in the bottomless pit. Behold now, let my heart tell you what it was seeking there, that I should be gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil, but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved my own error. Not that for which I erred, but the error itself. Base soul, falling from your firmament to utter destruction. Not seeking anything through the shame, but the shame itself. And he continues... What was it then that I, miserable one, so doted on in you, you theft of mine, you deed of darkness, in that sixteenth year of my age? Those pears truly were pleasant to the sight, but it was not for them that my miserable soul lusted. For I had an abundance of better, but those I plucked simply that I might steal. For having plucked them, I threw them away, my sole gratification in them being my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy." For if any of these pears entered my mouth, the sweetener of it was my sin in eating them. Augustine clearly recognizes later in his life and mourns over this event in seeing the total depravity and sinfulness in himself. And this recognition would later yield fruit in his refutation of the Pelagian controversy, which we will address later in this lesson. In 371 A.D., His parents send him to the city of Carthage to begin his studies in further education. 
There, Augustine, now 17, would immerse himself in the writings of Cicero and other Manichaean philosophers, while also developing his skills in rhetoric. Around this time, Augustine's father, Patricius, dies. And while this event seems to have little effect on Augustine, he does make note in Confessions that his father was baptized and became a Christian a year before his death, which Augustine contributes to the faithful prayers of his mother, Monica. With his new life in Carthage, Augustine now throws himself into what he calls unbridled dissoluteness. In Confessions, he again mourns over the depravity and sinfulness in himself from the life of sexual sin that he now lives while in Carthage. In regards to his education, Augustine became a master of the spoken word. He developed a phenomenal memory, had a meticulous attention to detail, and an ability to open the hearts and minds of his audience. And if you've read Confessions, you can see that clearly. Upon completing his education in Carthage, Augustine returns home to Thagus to begin teaching rhetoric there. He would later return to Carthage to teach rhetoric as well, and then accept a professorship in Rome, and then become the professor of rhetoric in Milan in 384 AD. In Milan, Augustine began attending church services where the great bishop Ambrose preached. It was under the preaching of Ambrose that Augustine gradually became intellectually convinced of the truths of Christianity. Augustine recalls that it was how Ambrose's, quote, gifted tongue never ceased, uh, never tired of dispensing the richness of your corn, O God, the joy of your oil, and the sober intoxication of your wine. Unknown to me, it was you, my God, who led me to him, so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. Being intellectually convinced for the truth of Christianity, Augustine now begins to wrestle with his life of sin. He says, I was still held firm in the bonds of woman's love. I began to search for a means of gaining the strength I needed to enjoy you, my God. But I could not find the means until I embraced the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. In late August of 386 A.D., after wrestling with his life of depravity and sin, Augustine tells us of this glorious moment that changed his life forever. He writes, There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden, where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying, How long shall I go on saying, Tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end to this ugly sins at this moment? All at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was a voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again, it repeated the refrain, Take it and read. Take it and read. At this, I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children uh, used to chant words like these, but I could not remember even hearing them before. 
I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes fell. So I hurried back, seized and opened it, and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. And that being Romans 13, 13 through 14, which says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Augustine continues, I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of this sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Augustine was baptized the following spring in 387 by the Bishop Ambrose. And in the fall of that same year, Augustine's beloved mother, Monica, died. She was a mother filled with joy in knowing that her son was safe in Christ. In 389, he was appointed a priest under the tutelage of Ambrose. And upon Ambrose's death, Augustine became the Bishop of Hippo, where he remained there for the rest of his life. And so that's just a quick summary of the life of Augustine. And while there are many other details... Uh, that unfortunately I won't be able to get into, I would now like to shift our gaze from the base of this Augustinian peak and begin to look upwards towards his theology and doctrine. Specifically when looking at the Reformation and tying it in, one of the most influential and quoted sources, apart from Scripture itself, of course, is Augustine. John Calvin and his writings are filled with him. He quoted him, around 750 times just in the Institutes. Uh, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, drank deeply from the well of Augustine's writings and teachings as well. His influence on Calvin and Luther was, as John Piper says, second only to the influence of the Apostle Paul. And while there are several theologians that we are looking at this month who shaped and informed the Reformation, I believe I can safely say that the Augustinian Alps towers over the thousand years between Augustine and the Reformation. And while, once again, capturing his theology and doctrine in a short 40-minute lesson is impossible, I would now like to move our gaze to this peak, which is the Pelagian controversy and the doctrine of grace. And so the Pelagian controversy is usually understood in terms of church history as being under the topic of anthropology. This is the doctrine of what man is and how he is influenced in manners which are related to salvation. The fundamental presuppositions between Augustine and a man named Pelagius in regard to what is man, what is, he, what is his character or nature, and what is he able or unable to do. In regard to Pelagius, once again, we know very little about him. We know that he was a British monk who traveled from Britain to Rome, was well known even by Gustin as an excellent communicator throughout his writings of formal letters, of exhortation, and also wrote the expositions of the letter of St. Paul, which is the clearest source of Pelagius' theological views. In 413 A.D., Pelagius wrote a long letter to a woman named Demetrius on the occasion of her becoming 
a nun, her decision to become a nun. This letter was a widely publicized and calculated on Pelagius' part in the declaration of his theological views. In this letter, Pelagius says, Since perfection is possible for man, it is obligatory. Whether, whenever I have to speak of, how, of laying down rules for behavior and the conduct of a holy life, I always point out, first of all, the power and functioning of human nature and show what it is capable of doing. Lest I should seem to be wasting my time by calling on people to embark on a course which they consider impossible to achieve. Pelagius believed that perfection was both commanded and required of man, and that man was capable of doing this. God had made men to live out his commands, and he would condemn anyone who failed to keep any of them. But what Pelagius was most concerned to defend was that everyone's nature is created perfect, uh, is created for perfection to be achieved. And so the Pelagian controversy would ultimately begin from a line in Augustine's Confessions, which I'm sure we're very familiar with. God, give what you command, and command what you will. Pelagius had no objection to the first line, command what you will. But he objected strongly to the second line, give what you command. Pelagius believed this to be a direct assault on man's ability. He responded in saying, whether we will or whether we will not, we have the capacity of not sinning. I say that man is able to be without sin, and he, he is able to keep the commandments of God. Pelagius believed that if God commanded obedience from man, then man must be fully able to obey those commands without divine grace. Because God would not command something that man cannot do in his own power. Pelagius' view was ultimately one that rejected three scriptural doctrines. Original sin, bondage of the will, and the necessity of divine grace. And I want to take a look at what Scripture says, what Augustine says, and then tie it into the Reformation and what the Confessions and Creeds say. And so in regards to original sin, the doctrine of original sin is sometimes misunderstood as referring to the first sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But the doctrine of original sin refers to the result, consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, or Adam's sin, and the effect that it had on all of humanity in receiving a sinful nature. Pelagius believed that everyone was only accountable for their own sin and did not receive a sinful nature due to the fall. He used Deuteronomy 24.16 and Ezekiel 18.20 to support his rejection of this belief. Deuteronomy 24.16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. And Ezekiel 18.20 repeats the same. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Pelagius' use of these verses is, of course, an ignoring of the context and a confusing of categories. Neither of these passages are talking about original sin and how the entirety of humanity receives a sinful, fallen nature. Deuteronomy 24.16 is speaking on the subject of personal sin and how the Lord does not hold a child accountable for the sins of their parents. 
Ezekiel 18.20 is speaking to the people of Judah while in exile. And this would actually serve as a message of hope for these people that if they turned to God, they would not be held accountable for the sins of their fathers before them. Neither of these verses are speaking in regards to the doctrine of original sin. We do see clearly, though, Scripture speaking on this topic. In the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. We also see David in Psalm 51.5 speaking on this doctrine when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now David is not saying that his mother committed sexual adultery in his conception, or that he had done something evil by being born, but rather David was acknowledging original sin and the sinful nature that he had received through Adam. Augustine responds many times in his writings on original sin, and I chose three that I think best summarize his overall response. On forgiveness of sins, he says, Even in those who had not yet sinned, the similitude of Adam's transgression, that is, who had not yet sinned of their own individual will, as Adam did, but had drawn from him original sin, because in him was constituted the form of condemnation to his future progeny, who should spring forth from him by natural descent, so that from, all, from one, all men were born to a condemnation. In his book, The City of God, he says, Man's nature, indeed, was created at first faultless and without any sin. But that nature of man in which everyone is born from Adam now requires the physician because it is not sound. The whole human race has been condemned in its first origin. This life itself, if life is to be called, bears witness by the host of cruel ills with which it is filled. Is not this proved by the profound and dreadful ignorance which produces all the errors that unfold in the children of, man, or of Adam? And one last. Far be it from us to assail this article of faith about which we have no uncertainty that every soul, even the soul of an infant, requires to be delivered from the binding guilt of sin and that there is no deliverance except through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so I wanted to look at the how this ties into the writings of the Reformation. And so in your hymnals in front of you, if you would turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith in the back, Chapter 6. We're going to look at Article 2, 3, and 4. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 6, Article 2, 3, and 4. That's page 852. Thank you. 852 is the page number. And so in speaking about original sin, I got... Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, chapter 6, article 2. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. 3. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Article 4. From this original corruption, whereby we are all utterly indisposed, disabled, 
and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. To quote the Belgic Confession very quickly, we believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. It is corruption of all nature and inherited depravity, which even infects small infants in their mother's womb. And the root which produces in man every sort of sin, it is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the human race. Therefore, we reject the errors of the Pelagians who say that this sin is nothing else than a matter of imitation. So even in the writings of the Reformation, we see Augustine, some of the wording that he used, and we see even the Belgian Confession mentioning the Pelagian controversy specifically. I would now like to move into the second scriptural doctrine that Pelagius rejected, and that being the bondage of the will. With Pelagius rejecting the doctrine of original sin, it of course follows that he believed that man's will was free and fully able to do righteous works that were pleasing unto God. We see in Scripture that this is not the case. And that as it says in Psalm 14, 1-3, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable things. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. And there is none who does good. No, not one. And again when it says that the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. I've chosen two of Augustine's responses to Pelagius. He says, What good works can a lost man perform, except so far as he has been delivered from perdition? Can they do anything by the free determination of their own will? Again, I say, God forbid. For it was by the evil use of his free will that man destroyed both it and himself. For as a man who kills himself must, of course, be alive when he kills himself, but after he has killed himself, ceases to live and cannot restore himself to life. So when man by his own free will sinned, then sin being victorious over him, the freedom of his will was lost. He continues in the same letter. From whence comes this liberty to do right to the man who is in bondage and sold under sin, except he be redeemed by him who has said, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And before this redemption is wrought in a man, when he is not yet free to do what is right, how can he talk about the freedom of his will and his good works? Except he be inflated by that foolish pride of boasting which the Apostle Paul restrains when he says, by grace are you saved through faith. Augustine's writings and teachings in regards to man's will being bound to his nature would greatly influence a certain young Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther who would not only write a book titled The Bondage of the Will, but also be one of the greatest voices of the Reformation on the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone. We see in Augustine's response to Pelagius that he understood that it was faith and faith alone in how God can declare us righteous before him. 
I would now like to look at his response, uh, at how he his responses shaped the writings of the Reformation once again. And so if you can turn to page 854 in your hymnal, once again we are in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Page 854, we're going to be in chapter 9, article 3. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 9, article 3, in regards to man's will, says, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 7 and 60, says, Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good work and inclined toward all evil? Answer, Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. In question 60, how are you righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace. Augustine understood that the bondage of man's will to his nature. And this recognition moves us into what is one of the greatest theological doctrines that Augustine fought for and heralded from his conversion to his death in regards to the Pelagian controversy. And that being the glorious doctrine of what would come out of the Reformation is sola gratia, grace alone, and the necessity of divine grace. And so since Pelagius rejected original sin, rejected that man's will is bound to his fallen nature, he saw that there was no need for the necessity of divine grace. As he said previously, whether we will or whether we will not, we have the capacity of not sinning. I say that man is able to be without sin and that he is able to keep the commandments of God. Pelagius' rejection on the necessity of God's grace was what caused Augustine's zeal and joy to burn the brightest. When someone asked him why he was so passionate about the grace of God, he said, first and foremost, because no subject gives me greater pleasure. For what ought to be more attractive to us sick men than grace, by which we are healed? For us lazy men than grace, grace by which we are stirred up. And for us men longing to act, than grace by which we are helped. We see this beautiful and glorious truth in Ephesians 2, 4-10, through 10, when it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And while this is the 
greatest doctrine that Augustine wrote on. I want to skip over a couple of his quotes because there are many. Uh, but I believe this one quote perfectly summarizes his view on the necessity of God's grace. He says in Letters 176, There was no reason for the coming of Christ the Lord except to save sinners. Take away disease, take away wounds, and there is no reason for medicine. If the great physician came from heaven, a great sick man was lying ill through the whole world. And that sick man is the human race. He who says, I am not a sinner, or I was not, is ungrateful to the Savior. No one of the men in that mass of mortals which flows down from Adam, no one at all of that men is not sick. No one is healed without the grace of Christ. We owe therefore to Him that we are, that we are alive, that we understand, that we are men, that we live well, that we understand right. We owe to Him. Nothing is ours except the sin that we have. For what have we that we did not receive? Augustine's joy was in the sovereign grace of God and how it is a gift that frees us from the bondage of sin. And this joy in God's grace is clearly seen, once again, in the writings of the Reformation and specifically the Westminster Confession. And so once again, on page 854... Chapter 10, Article 2, or 1 and 2. Page 854, Chapter 10, Article 1 and 2. On God's grace. Article 1. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only He is pleased, in His appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and ravingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. Article 2. This effectual call is of our God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until, being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. So in closing... A little bit about Augustine towards the end of his life. In early August of 430 AD, Augustine, now 75, fell ill with a fever and he knew that he was dying. The final few weeks of his life were spent on his deathbed where he had ordered the four Psalms of David to be copied out on sheets of paper and hung on his walls so that he could read them, weep over the sovereign grace that he had received, and spend uninterrupted time in prayer. After nearly 20 years of laboring for the doctrine of the sovereign grace of God in both his exhaustive writings and teachings against the Pelagian controversy, the great preacher of grace died and was buried on August 28 in 430 AD. And while he never saw the end 
of the Pelagian controversy. A year later, at the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, Pelagianism was condemned. And this triumphant doctrine of the sovereign grace of God, which ultimate, would ultimately reach its glorious crescendo a thousand years later in the writings of the Reformation, as we've seen. B.B. Warfield, in his book on the Pelagian Controversy, writes about Augustine's theology. And he says, Its central thought was the absolute dependence of the individual on the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It made everything that concerned salvation to be of God and trace the source of all good to Him. Without me, ye can do nothing is the inscription on one side of it, and on the other side stands written, all things are yours. No theology was ever more conscientiously wrought out of Scripture. Is it without error? No. But its errors are on the surface, not of the essence. It leads to God, and it came from God, and in the midst of the controversies of so many ages, it has shown itself an edifice whose solid core is built out of material, as Scripture says, which cannot be shaken. And so this majestic peak of the Augustinian Alps is one that heralds the joy that Augustine experienced in the doctrine of God's grace. And why such joy? As he previously said, because first and foremost, no subject gives me greater pleasure. For what ought to be more attractive to us sick men than grace by which we are healed? For us lazy men than grace, grace by which we are stirred up. And for us men longing to act than grace by which we are helped. Close in prayer. Almighty God, may you grant to all of us that same joy that Augustine experienced in your sovereign grace. May we be a people that heralds that grace, that it is grace and grace alone by which we are saved, not by anything that we have done or can ever do, but only through your sovereign grace. We thank you for Augustine and the blessing that he has been to your church and will continue to be to your church. And I pray that we would read more about this man that labored so greatly for your glory. I thank you for this time you have given us here this morning, and I ask that you would bless the rest of your Lord's Day as your people gather to worship you. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen.